Fresh Art International presents conversations about creativity in the 21st century. This is Fresh Art International. I'm Kathy Bird. Our podcast explores the center and fringe of art scenes around the world. Today we bring you part two of our live broadcast from the Everglades on February 24, 2019. We streamed this program on joltradio.org from the porch at the Co-Visitor Center in Homestead, Florida. As a fellow in the Artist-in-Residence in Everglades program, also known as Airy, I spent an entire month capturing stories and sounds in the endangered subtropical wilderness. Airy's creative director, Deborah Mitchell, joins me to introduce artists, scientists, rangers, educators, and activists from the Miccosukee tribe, all inspired by the River of Grass. In 2017, I spoke with Airy fellow Adam Nadell about getting the water right, the exhibition that grew from his residency. I'm here at the Ernest Coe Visitor Center at the Everglades National Park. And you hear wild animal sounds, but they're actually recordings of animals that can be found in the Everglades. I'm sitting next to Adam Nadell. We're here to talk about a special project that Adam's been working on. It's called Getting the Water Right. It's the motto for the survival of the Everglades. And when they say getting the water right, they're referencing the quality of water, the quantity of water, and the timing of the water. And unfortunately, the stakeholders in South Florida can't agree on exactly what that should be. And their agreement is necessary for the continued health of the ecosystem here. And I think this project is about the human interaction with the Everglades and what that means and what it could mean. At the core of this project, the ideas of the Anthropocene and the future of biodiversity. So although I'm using Southern Florida and the Everglades as a template to discuss how humans and nature interact, both successfully and unsuccessfully, at its core is is sort of the, the more global question of what is our species' future if we continue to conduct ourselves in particular manners on the Earth. You had a residency here in 2014. It was an amazing opportunity to spend a month here, not only because you got to meet the people who are working to save the environment, but also the people who visit, and then to be able to travel outside of the park itself to visit the the communities around it who are actually living in the Everglades. They just aren't really aware of it. What will people experience? I've seen here panels with text, and there's some audio components people can access the website, which has oral supplemental material. In some cases, it's people who are in the photographs talking about subjects that interest them. Well, I was crowned sweetheart in June of last year, and I have had the honor of representation of the beef industry and going around. The sound of sugarcane burning, and one which is sort of a favorite of mine is a meeting involving stakeholders discussing the future of the Everglades. Uh, Flooding is a real big issue, but more important is human life. One of the reasons why I was excited to work on this is it provides a very clear-cut opportunity for people to understand how human interaction and choices about how we live our lives 
is affecting the world around us, and are we comfortable with letting things continue on the current trajectory, which is going to lead to a very particular outcome. One example on view is the sod field. That's a gorgeous photo of a green sod field. Beautiful grass, as far as the eye can see. The meaning of that to the wetlands is significant. So essentially, 200 years ago, you had a river of grass. And then because of choices that we make on how we like to live and what kind of environment we want around us, that land was reclaimed. And now instead of having a river of grass, you have grass, sod, you still have water. But the use is radically different. What was once the river grass, which was part of the healthy ecosystem, you now have grass and water, the exact contrary. It's said that development in Florida has reduced the size of the Everglades by one half. That half of the Everglades, which is now used to grow food and provide jobs or for golf, for entertainment or housing, for me, it's still the watershed. It's still actually part of the Everglades ecosystem. And our ability to successfully separate that aspect of our daily lives, we have nature and then we have human is a real factor in contributing to the current ecological issues. Next, we want to talk about an exhibition that's right inside the doors here in the Airy Nest, the other name for the gallery. And it's an exhibition with Miami-based artist Robert Chambers. The title of the project is Serapins. Serapins. So the Latin name for saw palmetto is Serenoa repens. This is the saw palmetto we're talking about. And it's an ancient plant, as you'll hear when Robert talks about it shortly. It's a small palm, and it's growing all around us. It reaches a maximum height of 7 to 10 feet. It's not a big plant. It's also endemic to this subtropical wilderness. And the leaves are used for thatching, and the berries are known for some medicinal qualities. Let's listen to the conversation I captured with Robert Chambers, with botanist Abe Abrahamson, whose research centers on the soft palmetto, and Hilary Swain, director of the Archbold Biological Station, a center for scientific research about the South Florida watershed. It could be the plant you'd find on Venus or Mars. This plant would be perfect. It can survive through massive fires. It has a fireproof exoskeleton, I call it, mm -hmm. that protects it. And it protects seeds from other plants that may be under it. And it, it comes back like a hydra. You whack off the head of the hydra, it pops right back. It's a very unusual plant with a lot of very, very unusual properties. Well, it is. And, and the thing that, that really strikes me, too, is this is a species we call a foundation species. And what we mean by that is it's a real foundation for the system of interacting animals and plants. And so the quantity of it, the cover of it, the fruit that it produces, the flowers of it, all feed an enormous number of animals. And so this is an incredibly important plant. If you removed it from these systems where it occurs, uh, it would have a real serious impact on the wildlife that are associated with it. So it's, it's part of a web of life. It truly is, a, in a sense, it's almost an island of life in of itself. It, 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 it supports so many other species. 
How are you representing this plant and its ecosystem? We're using a new art medium, art form, where, like, say, you would have ceramics. Here we have all kinds of 3D printing. We're using uh, Z18 maker bots that use a PLA, a plastic acid material, which is cellulose and sugars, to print out the materials. We have uh, CNC table platforms that mesh with milled tops of the fractals of the lytic limestone, the inflorescences of the plant itself, the insects and reliefs of the Cerno ripens plant and the berries, which have unusual medicinal properties going back to pre-Mayan times. And I see it as the red mangrove of the Everglades, and others call it the gas station of the Everglades. And it's just an amazing plant. If you see it after a burn, you'd feel like you were on Mars. It's like this amazing, alien, strange, intriguing form, very sculptural. When I was at the Archbold Center, one of my muses, Hillary, I was talking uh, over the din of a number of scrub jays and said casually, this plant can be 5,000 years old. As a scientist, what is the most exciting element in this exhibition space for you to see materialized by an artist? This is a question of trying to communicate what science is learning to a whole new audience. The, the blend of science and art is uh, not something that gets to happen every day. You know, I was just, just delighted to think that something we had been doing caught the eye of an artist, and then it gets interpreted in ways that, you know, are not the way my mind thinks. I mean, I'm, I'm one of these very linear thinkers, you know, that categorizes information. And this is more of an inspirational kind of thing. And it's, it's neat because it speaks to people um, in ways that a scientific article will never speak to most of the people. Is there one moment that was the epiphany on this? Deborah Mitchell, director of ARI, brought me to the cabin where the artists are given uh, one-month residencies. And I was looking for inspiration. And what I decided to do was go out at night without a flashlight and stumble around in an area where there'd been a recent burn. And I, my inspiration was tripping over one of these uh, rhizomes here and going, uh, stumbling forward and going back and remarking what an unusual form and this slightly smoldered alligator back shape. And then there were many of them. But I didn't really think much of it at the moment. This form that we see in the gallery, is it an embellishment of the surface you found, or it's representing almost exactly what you almost exactly tripped on? It is, but it's enlarged and stylized and made, created it, made it into an artistic form to draw you into the, the idea and the ecology of the plant. When I first saw it, my immediate reference was an alligator. That's, that's a nickname by indigenous peoples is alligator back. After spending time at the Airy residency, I was then brought by Deborah and Valerie Ricordi and several others up to the Archbald. Hilary Swain is in the room. How does it feel to see the realization of all these ideas that came forth from Robert's visit? I'm just thrilled and beguiled. Um, I, 
I just, you know, big trees from little acorns grow, so a, a lot came out of our walk, and that's a bit what I'm feeling like. Uh, I'm just humbled by the way that someone can see something that I think of very much in terms of biology and pattern and process, and they see a whole new dimension. So I just love the combination of sort of the power of the shapes, you know, the sort of... The, one of the things about sopalmatos is they're so... They're so geometric, but then they're set in a sort of soft context. And that's what really appeals to me about this. Uh, Robert's pulled out the geometry of the plant, but he's also been able to set it in the soft context that it normally is in an ecosystem. So I guess that's the power of palmetto. In the same way that his art has been greatly expanded by things like digital printing, you know, our science was greatly expanded by new technologies. So if it hadn't been for new gene and genotyping data and our ability to use molecular evolutionary techniques, we would have never been able to rely on the sort of traditional long-term ecological knowledge that Warren Aberson has built up, but then combine it with this cutting-edge new technology. And in a way, that's the same as the artist's sensibility, understanding the artistic appeal of this, but using modern technology to take the interpretation further. So I really like that, you know, biology's been transformed by technology and so is art. And what's sort of really fun about this exhibit, well, more than fun, what's really inspiring about this exhibit is it's both of those things coming together, both being transformed by technology, but based in a deep-rooted understanding, either from an artistic impression, understanding or an ecological understanding. And the confluence of those two things is really remarkable to me. Okay, that was a fantastic conversation. It went on for quite a while, and I could not leave anything out. It was so beautiful. It's always a delight to be in Hilary Swain's presence. She is our guru. She is quite a scientific mind and has such an enchanting way of portraying the science to us as artists that we're always enraptured when we're in her presence. And to be with her, with someone like Robert Chambers, whose mind is just on fire all the time with ideas, was just a joy. It really was so special. We're, you know, we're, we're really honored to have the exhibit in so many ways. It's our first national grant. We got a grant from the NEA to put this show on, a modest grant, but it got us running out of the gate. And there were challenges in the sense that Robert's work is usually incredibly large scale and very heavy and we couldn't bring in sculptures that weighed over 10 tons into the gallery for logistical reasons. That's his specialty. It is. <laughs> Think <laughs> helicopters, sugar bus, huge things. So that's just been terrific twofold, Kathy, to work with someone like him who just bursts with creativity all the time and to layer that in with wonderful biologists has been so exciting. And, and I have a a wonderful catalog we can pass around our people attending the talk today called Serapins. It's our first catalog produced for a show, and we're just delighted with it. It just came out with the help of great editor and board member Tyler Emerson Dorsch, who is with us today. And now we want to invite Sarah Michelle Rupert, interim Hello. executive director, to tell you, listeners and those present, how you can become an Airy Fellow. 
Yes, hello, and thank you so much. Our residency is actually opening up on April 1st. We encourage all artists, writers, composers, choreographers, creatives, scholars. It's a really special kind of residency. As you've heard on the show today, not only do you get to live and work here in the Everglades, you also get the support of Everglades National Park Rangers, of the board of ARI. We also introduce artists in residence to biologists, to scientists, to scholars, to other artists, um, anybody that might be able to enrich your experience or your educational journey here in the Everglades. Sometimes that includes boat rides like Kathy was talking about. Sometimes that includes field trips up to the headwater of the Everglades, which is actually outside of Everglades National National Park, but a very integral part of the Everglades ecosystem. That application is on our website at AIRI.org. That's A-I-R-I-E.org. The application is live on April 1st, and this year we are offering a $1,000 stipend per residency. I am going to make it my personal objective to make sure we have a diversity award available by April 1st, and we will be releasing details of that by the end of March. So check in with the website. We are going to share with you a remarkable group of residents, fellows, who were just here. They broke all airy records by being 10 people in one residency program. And they are known as the Agile Rascals. They're a theater troupe that travels with new and innovative plays on bicycles. And we captured a few conversations with them to share their project with you. The first conversation you will hear is with founder Dara Silverman, and I recorded it during our field expedition to the Archibald. Basically, if you see a wetland and it has a clump of trees in the middle of it, that's an alligator hole. Huh. Because when they wallow, they make a little berm and then trees grow on it. And mm. so the alligator hunters could just look across the prairie when you see a little clump of trees sticking up in the middle of a pond, you know that that's an alligator hole. That's what you go to. <laughs> We're going to go to a slough system. It's kind of a river that flows down toward the Kissimmee River, which is 10 miles away. My name is Dara Silverman. I'm the artistic director and founder of Agile Rascal Bicycle Touring Theater. We are here uh, in Florida for our third bicycle touring theater project. Our first project was in 2015. We did a coast-to-coast -coast tour from California to New York City over the course of three months, performing an original play and carrying it on our bicycles. For our second project in 2017, we gathered artists from all over the country to come to the state of Montana to devise an original work in, for, and about the state of Montana, and again, tour it on our bicycles. And now we're sort of working off of that more regional model, um, and now we are working uh, as artists in residence in the Everglades. Uh, again, crop of artists from all over the country. We've got writers and performers and dancers and designers and director and musicians um, and singers and many people wearing many different hats and we are devising a play based on what we learn in the natural environment and the history of Florida in early February we'll be strapping our costumes props and set onto our bicycles doing a counterclockwise loop through the state of Florida performing in cities and towns across the state that's wonderful. I've been with you for a couple of days as we've been touring the 
Archbold Biological Station and getting tours with scientists. And it's been extremely informative for me, and I can imagine the amount of information is overwhelming. <laughs> it, it is a little bit overwhelming. I mean, especially because it, it's all related, and I think that's one of the things that we're really learning is, number one, that it's all related, and that number two, when you ask a scientist for an easy answer, like, how is climate change going to affect this area? There's not a clear answer. There's so many different variables, and the play that we create alludes to this bigger world, and so there's much more of kind of a blurred line between us on our bicycles navigating this landscape and us on stage performing this piece, turning all of Florida into our set. Oh, look at all the alligators. Damn. And that clip opened up with uh, Dr. Paul Gray from Audubon counseling the Agile Rascals when we were all up in Lake Okeechobee in January. Great trip. As you heard Dara exclaiming about the gators, we had just come upon a family, a community, a little small town of alligators. <laughs> and she was exclaiming because all of them have never been that close. And they'd seen a lot down here, but not that many all together lying on top of each other and generally hanging out. It was specifically at the Kissimmee State uh, Park. It was. Mm -hmm. It was beautiful. Next, you're going to hear from one of her colleagues, Miguel Alejandro Castillo from Venezuela. He serves as lighting designer and performer. Those rascals are out there right now on their bikes headed to a new town to perform. We recorded on the same trail where I recorded with Dara. One of my good friends had been part of this theater group before, theater company, and you know, I thought that it was a good opportunity for me to to ground myself again in that knowledge and in that practice because, I mean, it is super important <laughs> and we do live in a place that it's, you know, kind of a disaster in terms of how we're treating nature. Yes. I think Florida is an excellent case study mm. for the global issues. Yeah, I mean, it, it's so clear that we cannot control it, you know, and, and that there is... I mean, one of the biggest things that I have sort of relearned in this little adventure that we have had was is just the complexity of relationships. You know, in nature, everything is, it's so complex. I love that, that question you asked yesterday about what, what did the scientists learn from the ants? Hmm. Yeah, yeah. What did you take away from that? I took away the idea of having a structure that it's worked by everybody. Uh, I remember Mark just talking about how the ants are not really controlled by a ruler. They just know what to do and they just do it. And that just creates the success of their community. That's what he said. He's like, oh, if we could just learn how to live in community in that way. You know, people, everybody just doing their work. We always assumed that ants were run by the queen, but in fact, everything is run not through uh, direction from on top, but through networks of communication involving various kinds of uh, sense and behaviors. They're all blind, they're completely blind, but they make these very complicated paths and move about, and then at the right time, they all start carrying everything back to the nest. 
all that's arranged by all the interactions between all the ants. It isn't directed at all in, in any executive way. Ants work in these networky ways. They are actually helping us understand how to put together systems that are not directed like from above, but are directed by the entire environment. The gentleman you just heard speaking is Dr. Mark Dayrup from Archbold Biological Station, one of the most preeminent entomologists in the world. So the last voice you're going to hear from Agile Rascals was from the night they performed for the first time at the Airy Benefit at the Kampong. And I was able to catch a few words with Jenny Hipster, the play's director, right before the show began. You have a few thoughts as you're about to share this with the world? Um, sure, we're really excited. The last few days have been like super adapting on the fly with all the weather. We don't have any inside covered rehearsal space. So last night we had to flee a local park when the sprinklers came on, which gave us some practice for today when, the, when it started raining after we got set up in an abandoned parking lot and then moved to another park that had cover. You know, we've just been adapting Continue with a, a set with the wind. Is that and not so we're like just, about life Exactly. So that's And that is what Ad Rascal really is about. And that's kind of also true to the world that this play is set in, the, the themes we're talking about. We're living it. Awesome. <laughs> living, the, living the dream and also the reality. We're taking this on the road and performing 14 more shows, and we'll be pedaling a thousand miles in over six weeks, carrying our costumes, props, and sets all on our bicycles. for being with us here tonight. You're a beautiful and brave audience. It's like what we always say. When the weather gets wild, the, the wild hold on tight. With that said, we know it can be hard sometimes living in the lowland, your house being overtaken by strangler figs, your living room a breeding ground for killifish. Sometimes you just need a little escape. A little reminder of the way things used to be. And that's why we pedal from enclave to enclave, alligators nipping at our heels to help you keep the lost comfort of a forgotten world in your hearts. These people are the only home I've ever known. I'm traveling in circles, but they come and go. I want to find a place where my love can be Oh, that is right for me Oh, that is right for me Ooh. They were pretty amazing and pretty full of energy. Our next guest is Christina Molina. Welcome. Thank you. So glad that you could be here. Christina is going to talk about her upcoming residency. She hasn't been here yet. She will be in residence in the month of June. That's right. At the edge of the heat wave. Well, I'm a Miami native, so I have a little idea of what it's like in ah, June. Oh, that's so true. You're in Miami right this minute, but you're based in New Orleans now. That's right. 
I have been following her work for a while, and I was just so happy to see that she was coming here. Christina works in photography, video, installation, and performance. And how I want to start our conversation is with a recent video project at Small Track from Ice of the World, and we'll talk about what that piece means to Christina after we listen for a few minutes. There is no ocean where I live. So you gave me a shell so that I could hear your secrets from afar. You remind me you were born on the day after an eclipse. That birds of paradise make a cracking sound before their milk hits the tile. You taught me that passing cars sound like waves breaking on the shore. I know that one day, the ice of the world will submerge the tropics. I worry that all I remember now will be washed out later. You tell me not to worry. You say, you are an absolute balance. The answers will bounce off the sea and into the sky. You are a pillar who rests on the shoulders of her mother, who rests on the shoulders of her mother. La vejez tiene cara de perro. La ley del hielo está en efecto. Hasta dónde llegamos? Cómo pasa el tiempo? How about that? Ice of the world. It relates to another project called Matriarchs. Exactly, yeah. So Ice of the World was a video that I made as part of a larger series called The Matriarchs. Um, and so for The Matriarchs, I collaborated with all the women in my family to make a series of portraits, still lives, and video. And it was really a, an investigation of my family's identity within the landscape of South Florida. So I started making it after moving away from Miami and living in New Orleans and thinking about how my identity was so much formed by a sense of place and by a sense of these women who were so formative in my upbringing. And so I read an article in The New Yorker called The Siege of Miami. Um, maybe some of you remember it. And it was about how South Florida and Miami in particular is very vulnerable to sea level rise. So I started thinking about these women who I'm kind of far away from now and eventually losing them and at the same time thinking about losing my motherland and you know how do you cope with that ideas of loss within an eroding landscape um, so ice of the world was really bridging all of our generations together that's why in the beginning I, I'm talking about my mother and the things that she taught me and how I don't live next to the ocean anymore and kind of this almost like a fable about our relationship. And the video is in three parts, and each part kind of describes a different sect of our family going from daughter to mother to grandmother. Christina, you have an amazing project in your mind for the Everglades called Neverglades. That's right. And you evoke a particular woman 
Who is your muse? Uh, so Mayman Jennings is an incredible figure in history that I sort of became obsessed with because I'm very interested in female leadership and thinking about how women have been at the forefront of eco-preservation and eco-feminism. And so I, I really wanted to think about who these figures were in my home state. And I started researching and I found the history of, of Mayman Jennings. And um, what was kind of infuriating was I went down this rabbit hole of research and then when I looked at the Florida archives and looked up her name, it says governor's spouse. So I kind of rolled my eyes and got really like feverish. And I was like, people have to know that this person was an incredible figure and one of the people responsible for sanctioning the Everglades as a national park. Uh, she was president of the Florida Women's Federation before women had the right to vote and worked um, in the suffragist movement and really was well connected through a network of other amazing female leaders across the state who really lobbied for most of their lifetimes to sanction the park, and it was one of her greatest accomplishments. And so Neverglades is inspired by the story of Mayman Jennings and her political accomplishments, but also imagines a kind of utopian, egalitarian society all run by women and what that would be like. And Christina, I'm vaguely recalling from your application that the story, is it told through the eyes of a modern woman? Yes, yeah. It sounds like you need to talk to Betty Osceola. Yes. In <laughs> fact, I was very inspired by listening to your conversation and, you know, this idea of walking the land and really meditating and praying and thinking about the land because I do feel connected to this idea that a feminist approach to the land is very different is very much about embracing and nurturing and fostering. And I just love that idea of using your physical body to take action and to show leadership. I think it sounds like a great story. And, and for those of you who are listening online, you don't know that we have a nice audience with us today. And I, I've got to say, one of our strengths as a small organization for ARI is when people reach out to each other. So I encourage all of you here today, if you'd like to talk to Christina and learn more about her project, just to go up to her directly. That would be wonderful. It would be or my any pleasure. Of the artists that are here. Yeah. Chris, the other Christina yes. and Steve, I mean, these two. <laughs> Collaborate and coordinate. They're all here for you as resources. It's amazing. And you're right. Once you're here, this family feeling with the ARI program is, is quite intense. So welcome to the ARI family. Thank you. I look <laughs> forward to it. We found stories about the Everglades, about the nature and culture of the Everglades in the education program that we cannot resist sharing with you. The importance of educating, informing, inspiring, and stimulating young future citizens of the world to carry on what we're starting here, continuing here, is so critical. So I reached out to an educator that's based in Homestead, just a few miles away. She is a super fan of the Everglades, told me a lot of stories, but I'm going to share this one about what happens when she brings her students to the Hidden Lake for three days. Our students literally live right up the road from here, and most of them have never been here. When you bring them out here camping, it's a life-changing experience. 
We come by school bus and the ranger escorts us in and the bus brings us in past this gate. The ranger unlocks it and then the students have to get off of the bus with all of their materials and then they have to get ready for the hike in. Well, that's a way to prepare them to pack just what they need. That is correct. As a matter of fact, we have a training session um, about a month before we come out here. And part of that is what to pack, what to bring, what not to bring. They're not allowed to bring any of their cell phones out here, which gives them a month to go through withdrawal because we need them to be focused and not distracted at all. It's beautiful back here. So when we do the night hike, picture us leaving here and mm -hmm. it's dark and the ranger teaches us how to use our night senses how to use hearing and our sight at night and oh and the lightning bugs are just amazing and then we fall silent and we just listen to the soundscape because after you're silent for about five or ten minutes the animals think okay it's okay to speak and when they start to talk and they start to speak to one another and communicate, it's absolutely amazing. You hear them rustling and it also reminds the children that we are the guests. We, are, we don't live here and we're not alone. Imagine if you will, it's 9, 10 o'clock at night and we're out here with 25 sixth graders and five adults plus the ranger and it's absolutely pitch black and the ranger has asked you to turn off your flashlights and as you get to about here as you see there's a walkway going across to a bridge and you see two or three alligators just resting and you pause and you wait for them to go on their merry way so that you don't disturb them and the kids all 25 of them are cooperating and they're stopping and they're watching and they know not to turn their flashlights on unless they have the red paper on there so they don't mess up the, um, the alligator's eyes. And they're all in awe. I think the alligators are in awe of the students also. The students that we bring out here on the first day are not the same children that we take back. It's absolutely life-changing for them. All right, so that was a day when I went to Hidden Lake twice because I wanted to go back with the rangers who create these experiences for the children. And I have to give them a lot of credit for being as inventive as they are. As she describes some of the experiences, you can imagine they are at work night and day, figuring out how to work with each individual group that comes because they must each have a personality. So I sat down in the threshold of a tent with Lori Marois and Nathan Fox. So the tents all have names. Strangler mm -hmm. pig, indigo snake, Florida panther, red-shouldered hawk, and mosquito fish. Tell me about the hidden lake. Well, this is where the magic happens. This is where we do our education programs. We have uh, three-day camps that kids from all across the Miami area come in usually fifth or sixth graders, to stay overnight and experience this place. Being here in the Everglades is just, it's a wonderful way to teach. Uh, the magic of the national parks leads into to the camp here. That's I love how private it is and what a unique experience it is for students to have.
I'm so excited to finally have the chance to work with Everglades Education. As far as I know, it's the premier education park in the whole park service. Um, and the program has been going on here since 1971. What interests me is the range of sensory experiences that will impact these children for the rest of their lives. From what I've noticed, it seems that kids these days spend a lot of time inside, especially kids from some of the areas that we serve here. These kids live most of their lives in a whole different universe. Mostly it's noisy, uh, lots of traffic, mostly it's indoors, uh, mostly it's playing video games or you know on their phones. And so when they come out here, I think they're exposed to a whole different quality of sensory input in their lives. It has different impacts on different kids. Some kids think it's the best thing they've ever done. Some kids get extremely excited about being silent in the middle of a moral prairie or listening to the waves created by the paddles in their canoes. And some kids, you know, they, they get anxious about it. They don't, they don't really understand or, or like it. It's so foreign to them. But either way, I think there is something that happens to kids when they, when they come outside and are with their friends in this special place that's so different from the universe that they left. When they go home, I think they, they take that magic with them. Like Nathan said, these students, a lot of them live fairly close by. They live in the Everglades ecosystem, but it's more of an urban area, so they've never seen an alligator, which is crazy to me because they're everywhere here. We take them canoeing. We take them for walks in four different habitats. We do a night walk where they go out at night and walk through the woods, and it's incredible. A lot of Kids have never been outside at night and seen the stars. When we come out into an open area and everyone sees the stars, it's like this moment. It's pretty awesome. Okay, I just had to share that with you. It's just so fun to think about the time that's being taken to cultivate an awareness of the Everglades and this watershed. So now is a perfect time to introduce someone who's very involved in science and art and a great friend to Ari. Skip Snow was on the Ari Board of Directors for a couple of years in the old days. It was a lot of fun. He would meet with our artists monthly and counsel them, especially on invasives, but I think that a little of everything was covered on those long walks. Skip decided to retire in 2013, but since then he's been pursuing his own keen interest on the intersection of art and science, such as being a, a resident at the Deering Estate. So welcome, Skip. What have you been working on at the Deering? I had the opportunity to be a, a resident there. Part of that work found me walking. I like to walk. Um, I'm very fond of it. It was an integral part of my, my job over the 38 years was to walk and uh, as, a, as a park ranger and as a, as a researcher. And so I carried that over in my retirement years and, and walked to the Deering Estate, which was a couple miles from my home, and wandered around the mangroves and uh, took it upon myself from time to time to remove the, the plastic debris and the marine debris that I found. And then I started thinking about it in an ethnographic way. I started thinking about it in an artistic way. So I've used it, hoarded it, cleaned it, and began to use it for artistic expression as well as environmental messaging. But I do have an Instagram account, and it's walking came first, all run together, which is a shout-out to the fact that, according to, to some, 
one of the characteristics that make us human, one of those that is probably the earliest, if not the very first, is our upright, our bipedal walking. And uh, I really enjoy that notion of combining that very ancient mode of transportation to today's technology, such as GPS and and, uh, what I carry around in my pocket as a phone. Although art and science are, are very different endeavors, they have different methods, they have different traditions, we see them, though, intersecting more and more, more frequently, and we're going to see more of that as, as we move forward in the future. And I think that that relationship is because they have common goals, they have common things they're trying to achieve, and that's largely trying to understand the world around us and trying to then communicate that understanding with the hopes of, with these different views, be, be they scientific or be they artistic, that they make or allow people to see somehow differently, see a different view, and to somehow have that seeing provided uh, a change in their fundamental truth about their worldview. I couldn't agree more. You know, I feel like the data from the science alone hasn't much been able to move the needle of interest from the public in the state of Florida. And that's why, as creative director at ARI, I feel like presenting the public with intense artistic interventions may evoke that visceral reaction where people will become more interested and want to be more involved in helping our environmental situations. Someone once said, we are what we imagine. And if that's the case, then I think that we possibly can imagine different and perhaps we can imagine better. Beautiful. Thank you so much for being here with us, Skip. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Skip. We want to share with you a beautiful sound piece from Jose Elias, who was an Airy Fellow. I'm going to say it was January in 2016. He came up to go out with me to record Under the Moonlight at Mahogany Hammock. And he will be having a project in the Airy Nest, I believe, at some point in the future. We're working on the date. Working on the date. But he took time to go with me, and he composed this introduction to three very short pieces that he created with Everglades inspiration. This traditional song focuses on the relationship between humans and the animal kingdom of which we encroach on. It serves as a reminder of the natural sanctuaries that are compromised when new infrastructures are developed to accommodate mankind. Here's my friend Nuruddin, the singer of the song, to tell you more. Uh, This is a song of Dagumbes. It's from the people of the northern Ghana called Dagumbes. And the title of this song is Nayelea. Nayelea soro kuyul dam Nayelea. Nayelea soro kuyul dam Nayelea. Dindan shelong wokale la bole noye Nayelea. Kale la bole piaye Nayelea. Mwyelim ma 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 wuma punwani yel ma shamma. Adam veli di kumda. Bobugu nyela yembia. Batang nyela yembia. Pela di kumda mbia. Uyu. The next offering is an African blues improvisation I call Mahogany Hammock Blues. It's a combination of field recordings from my excursion with Kathy Bird into the hammock. The end result is a serenade to the insects and other wildlife that we encountered that evening. Thank you. 
This last piece focuses on the reality of invasive species taking over the Everglades. It features different indigenous flutes, which represent the python and a bird with a majestic call, warning the natives that the threat is even greater than before. here, Houston Cypress, and I want to introduce him with one of the sounds he shared with me, which was from the album Voices of the Everglades. We shared the starting notes from there, and now I want to share one of my favorite sounds. sharing that with me. You're most welcome. This is all about water, people. <laughs> I thought the forecast was rain today. I was ready for the sound to be constant during the show. <laughs> so I'm glad it's just a breeze now and then. So Reverend Houston Cypress is from the Miccosukee tribe. He's a poet, artist, environmental activist, and an ordained minister. Love the Everglades is it's a movement that advocates for cultural preservation, environmental protection, and sovereignty. And what I've invited you here to talk about really is that, that sovereignty, about how restoration affects tribal ways and how perhaps we need to think about decolonizing some aspects of the good that's being done for the Everglades. As we jump into the topic, I just want to kind of honor the circle by weaving in some of the themes that we touched on today. And that kind of that process reminds me of how our community makes a sweet grass basket. 
And so like the sweetgrass baskets has all these different elements and colors and things from nature that come in together. And I'm really proud that the women are so excellent in creating those crafts. Sound really is the evidence of life. And that's a quote from um, Gustavo Matamoros. And so like, what is the evidence of life? What does it sound like? Like, well, I think from my Mikasuki perspective, I would say that it sounds like songs. When we are strengthening our relationships with the natural world, that's what my colleague, Miss Betty Osceola, was advocating for in walking around that lake. When we do that, some of the things that we are trying to do is get out of this single species management mode, like what Skip Snow was talking about earlier, and like shift over to multi-species management in air quotes. My colleagues like Betty and others are telling us that we should listen to our friends and family more or more our friends and family in the natural world, these species. So I think as I start to touch on the topic of decolonization, let's bring that circle of life back to the center of the discourse. I love that. I thank you for summing up what I'm, the symphony I've, I've worked so hard to bring here today. Yeah, it was really magical, like, hearing Gustavo's recording, because, like, I was kind of wondering, like, have these daylight lives heard the songs of the nightlife before? And so, like, that was a really beautiful paradox, a sound paradox to be within. Like, here I am, like, hearing, like, morning sounds, and then there's, like, nighttime magic happening all at the same time. So it was really cool being in a sonic paradox like that. So how could you sum up the situation for the Mikasuki? I think it's a very challenging struggle to stick to our roots, but I think that that's what it's all about. I've been lately talking about the ways that the tribe is decolonizing science, but I don't think my community would talk about it in those words. Like the kind of words that we would talk about is just keeping the language alive, keeping the family together, keeping these stories going and sticking to our roots. But like when we're talking about decolonization, it looks different like all over the world in so many different communities. I'm looking forward to assisting my elders in making those decisions. Like they're relying on the circle of life and their spiritual philosophy to, to do what they can to protect the water and the animals and, and the stories that continue to thrive out there, the stories that are alive out there. And we're so glad mm. you're doing that. It's not just me though, it's, it's a communal community project. I'm only one person from the Otter Clan. We have colleagues from Panthers and so many other clans out there that are doing this work, and they don't really get a lot of the attention either. Mm -hmm. So we have to applaud the families that are just doing that hard work every day of saying those simple words of to that beautiful little girl or that beautiful little boy. So we need to applaud those families that are doing this work every day too. What did you just say to them? Good morning. It's so good to see you. So yeah. nice, I love it. Yeah. I've known you from your work with Love the Everglades movement, mm -hmm. and I think you are a little bit humble, my friend. Mm. Uh, you've done some amazing work in the community in bringing forth the opinion of some of your family members mm. and friends to our urban community. Could you tell us a little bit about Love the Everglades movement? Cool, thank you. So um, this is a project that me and my buddy started um, when we met up at the Art Institute. And he was doing a project on Everglades restoration, so I invited him out to the community. And since then, we've just been inspired by what the tribe is doing out there. So it's about supporting the indigenous communities. 
And like listening and seeing what they're doing, we're realizing that the arts is really integrated as a way of life. So that's why our movement has been so eager to embrace the arts, education, prayer and spirituality, and policy. We're seeing that that's a very integral and holistic way of life that our indigenous families are living out there. And so it's not separate. Like people want to categorize and divide and label, and that helps in some situations, but it's, it doesn't reflect the, the beauty of this place that we are surrounded by. Mm. Thank you for the reminder. It's true. Mm. For our listeners, how could they be supportive or get in touch with your organization? Let's get out into the Everglades, go hiking, get in the water, talk to these animals and plants. It may be kind of strange, but they would probably appreciate it too. So like, get out there and um, strengthen your connection with the Greater Everglades. And then in terms of supporting the organization, you can come to our events or follow us on social media. Or if you have a message, let us know. We'd like to help you get your message out there too. I want to invite to the table here a surprise guest that's involved with a very important project that is about to be unveiled in Miami on the beach at the convention center. We're going to sum up everything that we've heard here today, but I wanted to recognize Ellen Harvey. Hi, thanks for having me. Welcome. Ellen is in Miami to finish up this major public art coalition that is a tribute to the Everglades. British born and living and working in Brooklyn, she does huge public art commissions, and this is one of them. Could you tell us just briefly about the Everglades connection to this work? I think I'm a good example of what happens when you bring an artist to the Everglades in 2009, creative time, and the Everglades Foundation took a bunch of artists out of the convention center in Miami Beach, out of Art Basel, and I went to the Everglades for the first time and I completely fell in love. And when there was an open call to do a project for the convention center, I thought, people come to the convention center, they're in this magical, beautiful, weird, artificial place, but what they don't realize is they're part of this incredible ecosystem and they're part of this park. There are very few places in the world where you have such an incredible urban center abutting such an incredible natural resource. So the whole project I made is really about that and celebrating it. A little more detail on what our guests will see at the convention center with your new unveiling of the art installation. Well, what it is, is I spent about a year and a half drawing a slice of Florida from Miami Beach diagonally down through the Everglades, so from ocean to ocean. And that drawing, it's 100 feet long by 10 feet long, has been now transferred to handmade glass. It's a glass mirror and you enter the main ballroom at the convention center at the intersection between the Everglades and the sort of greater Miami area, so between the natural and the man-made world. And it, because it's a mirror, whenever the light hits it, the whole thing disappears. It's called Atlantis for the city under the sea. It sounds amazing. Congratulations, Ellen. And it connects the Everglades with the world that comes to Miami. I think it's wonderful. Thank you for being here. Thank you cameo appearance of Ellen Harvey. Now Deborah and I have the pleasure and sadness of summing up because we have so many other stories to tell you. And as she said, I could probably sit here all day and listen to these stories. I just think it's wonderful and thank you so very much for putting the intense amount of effort into this. I appreciate that you were interested in the stories I have to tell. Fresh Art International reveals the significance of 
contemporary art and culture as they connect in the real world and the environment's increasing significance in art. I think you could see from these conversations we shared and the sounds and the stories, there are powerful creative dimensions in the world around us. This is Fresh Art International. I'm Kathy Bird. The voices we share on our live radio broadcast from the Everglades reveal the role of creativity in conserving our natural environment. Visit freshartinternational.com to explore other conversations we've captured in the South Florida wilderness. This program is supported in part by artists in residence in Everglades and Everglades National Park. Go to AIRIE.org to learn more. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe, rate, and review Fresh Art International anywhere you go for podcasts. It means a lot to know you're listening. With your support, we've been sharing these stories since 2011. The John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, Emily Hall Tremaine Foundation, Locust Projects and the Andy Warhol Foundation for the Visual Arts, Tempest Projects and ARI are just a few of those supporting this podcast. Now is the perfect time to give us a boost. Go to freshartinternational.com and click on the red support button. The Knight Foundation will match your donation. Stay tuned for more contemporary art talk 